Job chapter 31, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read to verse 12. I've made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? For what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is it not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and count all my steps? If I've walked with falsehood, or if my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed on honest scales then God, that God may know my integrity. If my step has turned from the way, or my heart walked after my eyes, or if any spot adheres to my hands, let, then let me sow and another eat. Yes, let my harvest be rooted out. If my heart has been enticed by a woman... Or if I've lurked at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down over her. For that would be wickedness. Yes, it would be iniquity deserving of judgment. For that would be a fire that consumes to destruction and would root out all my increase. Since chapter 26, Job has pleaded with his friends and made a declaration. And now we come to what I'm going to call his covenant or his oath of innocence. Job has told his friends and has declared before God and anyone who's willing to listen that he's innocent. Job felt like his friends lacked sensitivity and compassion. And again, he has made repeated appeals for Sympathy for the chance to confront God, to affirm his basic integrity. And by the way, at the end of the book, when God shows up and Job realizes his own worthlessness and ignorance in the presence of Almighty God, God, even at that point, does not, I repeat, does not accuse Job of sin. God's accusation towards Job was that Job didn't fully realize the power, the majesty, the greatness of God. Job isn't claiming sinless perfection, but rather that he's not guilty of willful, deliberate sin. And for again, for those of you who are familiar, remember, he has suffered a series of unbelievable difficulties and challenges the loss of everything that he practically owns, the death of his children, the loss of his health. We may have different standards of righteousness or what we consider to be what constitutes a truly good person or a decent person, but by whatever measure you measure righteousness, goodness, decency, Job fits the bill. All human beings have a tragic trait. We know what the Bible says, that we are all sinners, that we're all guilty before God. And when faced with the purity and the holiness and the righteousness, when we look at the power and the majesty and the self-existent nature of God, we understand that we all fall short. And the repeated testimony of the scriptures is that we do all fall short. That there's none righteous, no, not one. That we've all gone astray. But that the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. And so we understand That because of the power and the presence and the damage that sin has done, the only way that we can escape our sinful circumstance and be declared righteous before God is that we have the righteousness of Jesus. That we we can somehow take off our sin and put on His holiness, His righteousness. And remember, 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 Job doesn't know about Jesus. Jesus is still 1,800 years into Job's future. As a matter of fact, we suspect that this book of Job and the circumstances of Job are taking place at about the same time as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That means that Moses and the giving of the law is still hundreds of years in the future. 
Job doesn't know about Jesus. Job lives hundreds of years before Christ and Moses. But Job has a sense that there must be a mediator, that there must be someone who can provide for him an advocate who can make his case before God. And so beginning in verse 1, he affirms his personal innocence. He says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? For what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is it not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and count my steps? What you need to understand in this particular passage is remember when he affirms his innocence, Job begins with an affirmation of his own personal purity. Don't you find that interesting? I do. Think about it. Job is on a trash heap covered with boils. And you're thinking, Job, you're not the go-to guy, I think, when it comes to sexual attraction at this particular moment. But guess what? He hasn't always been on a trash heap. Remember, Job made a promise When he says, I've made a covenant with my eyes, Job made a promise with his eyes not to look on a woman with lust. And think about what what, what is happening. Job wants to please God. And so it's his way of saying, not only have I refrained from looking at a woman with lust, but I've made a deal. I've made a contract, if you will. Job understands the importance of his personal purity. And he doesn't simply say, no, 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 I'm not going to look. I'm not going to look. He doesn't have this strange conversation where, where he, he hopes to look away. But rather that he has made a pledge. And think about that. Hundreds and hundreds of years, even before Jesus, in Matthew 5, 27, remember Jesus said, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Job anticipates that it isn't just simply looking at things that defiles you. We know that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks I went to the movies last night and I saw Focus on the Family's new film, Irreplaceable. In that film, they make a compelling argument that sexuality and broken sexuality leads to broken marriages, which leads to broken parents, which leads to broken children. That this issue of personal purity isn't some sort of disconnected thing that that does no harm or has no consequences. Job has made a, a decision to control his eyes. Job sensed that God would bring disaster on the wicked and destruction to those who do wrong. And that's part of what it means. For what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Connect the dots between verse 1 and verse 2. I've made a covenant with my eyes to refrain from sexual immorality. Look at the reason that he gives. Because I know that there's a God in heaven. I know that I'm going to have to give an account of my life. I know that God cares about my personal purity. Because he understands the consequences. Job senses that God is looking. And would hold Job accountable. That God sees everything. In verse 5 he says, If I have walked with falsehood, or if my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed on honest scales that God may know my integrity. Job appeals first to personal purity, and then to personal honesty. Remember, Job was a powerful rancher. He was a businessman. He was an entrepreneur. And remember what his friends accused him of. You must have made a mistake along the way. You must have done something horrible. You must have done something terrible. Job had to, being a powerful rancher, businessman, entrepreneur, we are, we're, we're left with the impression that scores, maybe even hundreds of people were employed by him. 
And when you have vast holdings and vast lands and vast estates, guess what? You enter into a lot of contracts with people. When you're doing business with a lot of different people, you're making a lot of different deals. Job is saying that he never used deceit to gain personal advantage. Job makes an appeal for a kind of spiritual lie detector test. Job wasn't afraid to let God judge his honesty, evaluate his integrity, find him whole. That's the meaning of integrity, by the way. It, It means wholeness and wellness. Paul pleads in Colossians chapter 3, verse 9, Do not lie to each other, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. In other words, Paul in the New Testament does exactly the same thing. He's, he's, he's basically saying, guess what? Purity and honesty are connected to one another just as you are connected to one another. In Proverbs 11, verse 1, it says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. And so when he says, let me be weighed on honest scales, just like he deals fairly with everyone that he comes in contact with, he's basically saying, I'm innocent. I've kept my integrity. I've been honest. In verse 7, he said, if my step has turned from the way or my heart walked after my eyes or if any spot adheres to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Yes, let my harvest be rooted out. Job refrains from covetousness. So when he says, if my step has turned from the way or my heart walked after my eyes, he's basically saying, look, not only have I been content With everything that I have, I haven't wanted what belongs to other people. That's what covetousness is, by the way. It's it's wanting more and more of what you already have enough of. And so when Job affirms his innocence of not straying off the path of righteousness, he's basically making the point, look, I haven't gone after ill-gotten riches or ill-gotten gains. I don't want anything that I haven't earned. He has no desire to steal. He again expresses confidence in his integrity. He's innocent of covetousness. He's innocent of, of theft. He's so sure that he's willing to lose his income. So when it says, Then let me sow and another eat. Yes, let my crops be rooted out or my harvest be rooted out. It's his way of... In those days, remember your income was based on what you sowed and what you reaped. Those of you who have ever been on a farm or or, or understand the principles of agriculture, you have an orchard, you have a farm, you have a harvest, and you sell the harvest, and that generates your income. He's basically saying, look, if, if I am not innocent, then it makes perfect sense that I would give up everything. Remember, Jesus said, beware of covetousness. For a man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. You'll remember in Luke chapter 12, verse 15 through 21, he gives a parable about a certain rich man who brought forth a lot of crops. And he says to himself, wow, I'm I'm rolling in the crops. I've got so much I don't know what to do with it. I have no room to bestow my fruits or I have so much stuff. I don't, I'm going to have to rent storage sheds to put them in. He said, I'm going to take my goods. I'm going to build bigger and better barns. I'm going to save and save. And guess what? I have saved so that I've got enough to last me. Even if I live a hundred more years or if I live 10 more lifetimes, I'm going to take my ease. I'm going to eat and drink and be merry. But God said, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose shall these things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus basically says, hey, look, he doesn't criticize the person for being rich. What he criticizes him is not being rich toward God. Do you understand what Job is saying? I, 
God has blessed me. But even in the midst of my blessing, I have blessed the Lord. He says in verse 9, if my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I've lurked at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down. In that particular culture and society, the lowest form of menial labor was grinding the corn with the mortar and the pestle. You would hire people. You, you couldn't find anyone to do this particular job. And so Job denies having, not just having done something wrong, He denies having a mental affair or an emotional affair. He's basically saying, look, not only have I been faithful to my wife in literally, in reality, that he's never sought to seduce his friend's wife or or hire a prostitute. And so when he says, if my heart has been enticed by a woman, which it hasn't, or if I've lurked at my neighbor's door, the implication is sort of like a peeping Tom in that particular culture and society. When you go from place to place and you peek into people's private circumstances, that's what he's basically saying. He's never sought to seduce a friend, a friend's wife, or hire a prostitute. He's refused to peek into his neighbor's tent. If Job is guilty of immoral behavior, he's willing to have his own wife enslaved and defiled. That's the picture. He's going, and again, men never use Job as a point to say, Hey, well, you know, Job gambled with his wife. I guess I'll gamble with my wife. I I don't think that that's the point of the passage. But he is basically affirming his integrity. And in verse 11, he says, for that would be wickedness. Now, again, think about what he's saying. I've been truly pure. I've been truly honest. And there's a reason why. Because if if I did those horrible and terrible things... It would be wrong. It would be wickedness. Yes, it would be iniquity deserving of judgment. For that would be a fire that consumes a destruction and would root out all my increase. This is what Job is saying. It would be wrong. The reason why it's wrong because sexual sin is wrong. The reason why it's wrong is because it's morally wrong. And that God is watching. He knew that adultery was harmful. He knew that it was shameful. He knew that it was devastating. He knew that it was like lighting a fire. He understood that in that culture and society, you you, you would have a campfire. You would have a, a fire in order to keep you warm at night, just like... Some of you have homes and you have a fireplace and you understand that the fire in the fireplace heats and generates light and comfort. But what happens when the fire in the fireplace moves into your living room or up your curtains or catches your furniture on fire? You understand that there's a place for passion. But he says this would be a fire that consumes to destruction. What's interesting in this particular passage is the word destruction is the Hebrew word abaddon. It was one of those names that was used to describe demons. It was a name that meant the grave or hell or the thing that would ultimately destroy. And so when he says a sin like fire that leads to insert abaddon. Insert the grave, insert hell, insert destruction, and it would destroy what little he had gained. And so he, again, anticipates what the New Testament teaches. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Know you not that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, thieves or covetousness, nor drunkards, nor revilers. Those are people who party hardy all night long. Nor extortioners. Those are people who take things that don't belong to him. Shall inherit the kingdom of God. Job understood that there was a relationship between what we do and what's going to happen to us. So he talks about not just personal innocence, but now he's going to move 
to relational innocence. In verses 13 through 23, I'm going to read it quickly. He says, if I have despised the cause of my male or female servant, when they complained against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? Again, note, when he says, if, they have, if I have despised the cause of my male or female servant, it's his way of saying, if someone who works for me brings a grievance to me, he doesn't say that no one ever has a grievance. He says that when a person has a grievance, he wants to treat them fairly and justly when they complained against me. What then shall I do when God rises up? In other words, he's saying, I'm going to take everything seriously. I'm going to take it so serious because I understand that I might misunderstand certain things. I might not see things clearly, but I understand that God sees everything clearly. He, he doesn't just take my side. He understands all sides. And so in verse 13 and 14, he says, What then shall I do when God rises up, when he punishes? How shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one fashion us in the womb? If I have kept the poor from their desire, or caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or eaten my morsel by myself so that the fatherless could not eat of it, but from my youth I reared him as a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or any poor man without covering, if his heart has not blessed me, and if he was not warmed with the Fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless when I saw I had help in the gate, then let my arm fall from my shoulder, let my arm be torn from the socket, for destruction from God is a terror to me, and because of his magnificence I cannot endure. Let's see if we can make sense of this. In verse 13, when he says, If I have despised the cause of my male or female servant when they complained against me, again, here's what he's saying. Remember what his friends have said. Job, you must have done something wrong. You must be hiding some secret sin. You must have taken advantage of someone and now it's all catching up with you. Job denies treating the servants unfairly. He claims that he's never mistreated his workers. And I need you to understand just what a strong statement that is. If you've ever had a business or been in charge of a business and you've been in charge of 20 people or 100 people or 1,000 people, can you imagine being in charge of that many people and every single person who works for you says, he's never, ever, ever been unjust, unkind, unfair. That's a, that's a remarkable statement. The book of Job seems to indicate that he's employed, like I said, lots of people. And note what he says, not that he didn't receive a complaint, but that when he received the complaint, he looked at each worker and each complaint and each circumstance and said, how can I honor God in this circumstance? How can I be just and how can I be fair? And we've seen this over and over again in our study of Job. When we look at Job and we look at the way he deals with circumstances, he's constantly thinking, what would God do in this circumstance? I remember I had an attorney friend who was taking the bar examination here in Colorado and he asked me for advice and I said, answer each question as if you had the power of God. Ask yourself this, what would God do in this circumstance? A just God, a holy God, a righteous God, a caring, benevolent God. And you'll get an idea of how to answer the question. Human beings are loved by God and they deserve fair treatment. And so he says in verse 14, What then shall I do when God rises up? When he punishes, how shall I answer him? Job gives two reasons. There's a reason why I do this. Because I am under the constant perception 
that everything that I'm saying and everything that I'm doing and every time I treat anyone for any reason, that I am going to be accountable to God, that I'm going to be accountable for my behavior. Job was aware that a creator God created all human beings, that they were established by God and accountable to God. What shall I do when he punishes? How shall I answer him? That we have an obligation to treat each other justly and fairly because people are Known by God, made by God. In verse 15, he says, Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Do you understand what Job is saying? Right at that very moment, he is affirming the unity of all humanity, the equality of all humanity, the dignity of all people. Think about what a radical statement that is. Especially in in the light of today's news when you hear about a radical Muslim group kidnapping 200 girls and then getting on national TV saying, Allah commands, I'm doing this for my religion and Allah commands that I sell them. What kind of a religion says it's okay to kidnap people, sexually brutalize them and sell them into slavery? Look what Job says, exactly the opposite. Human beings share a common origin. Did not he who made me in the womb make them? We come from a common origin. Each and every one of you had a mother. Unless you're here secretly as an angel and you were just a divine act of God and a special creation. If you are, see me after the service. But if you are human, then you're designed by God and made in the image of God. Equality and dignity aren't simply philosophical concepts to be embraced by the enlightened thinker. It's a truth to be practiced by young and old and rich and poor. And this truth is to be applied in every walk of life, in every transaction, in every business dealing. Look what Job is saying. He's basically saying to the people who have accused him of being unjust. I've always understood that God made me and that he made everyone. And that I'm accountable to him. He is in effect saying, I have wanted to do unto others as I would have them do unto me. In the ancient world, people had a keen sense of justice. In the 4th century BC, Plato said, To do injustice is more disgraceful than to suffer it. You've got to understand something. In the world of the Middle East, it was one thing to suffer injustice. It was another thing to promote it. It was unconscionable. It was unthinkable. I thought of a story that I heard by Herbert Manderlot. He tells the story of his parents during the Great Depression. He said that his father moved to a farm at the height of the Depression, and he was a a tenant farmer, and he signed a contract stating that he and the owner would share equally in the proceeds from the milk and the crops. And in the fall, the landlord refused to give the elder Vanderlut family, their, their share of the wheat crop. And the dad's appeal fell on deaf ears. He said, we signed a contract. You said you would be fair. You said you would be just. But the man refused to give him his due, and so he consulted a Christian attorney. And the lawyer read the fine print in the contract, and the lawyer advised the dad that he could take no legal action because the landowner was unethical, but he wasn't stupid. He wrote up a contract clever enough to include a clause in case he got into trouble. In other words, he had planned to be unkind and to be unethical. And so the lawyer said, Mr. Vanderlut, you have three choices. You can kill this guy and get into deep trouble, but I'll represent you. You can cheat him and be like him or you can take the wrong and let God take care of you and him 
And he had to come to a place in his life and ask himself what he really believed. Do I really believe that there's a God? Do I believe that there's a God who's watching out for me? Do I believe that there is a God who is going to right every wrong and make every unjust thing one day just? Again, he anticipates what it says in the New Testament. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Job understands that. He's dealt kindly. In verse 16, he says, If I have kept the poor from their desire, or caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or eaten my morsel by myself so that the fatherless could not eat of it. Remember, he was accused of being unkind, unfair, unjust to the poor. But he says, If I have kept the poor from their desire. What is their desire? It isn't just simply to be, not be poor. It is, I need something to eat today. I need a place to sleep today. I need someone to help me today or eaten my morsel by myself so that the fatherless could not eat of it. But from my youth, I reared him as a father. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I cared about the widows and I cared about the orphans. I actually took people in and adopted them as if I was their own father. And from my mother's womb, I guided the widow. I have seen I have, if I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or any poor man without covering, if his heart has not blessed me and if he is warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless when I saw I had help in the gate. The expression help in the gate is the judicial system of the ancient world where if anyone had a complaint, they could call witnesses. Let me just help you out just for a second. Remember, Job's accusers have accused him of not caring about the poor, not caring about the widow, not caring about the orphan. And in that ancient world, if you were accused of a crime, you could post something at the, at the, at the you, you would post the accusation at the city gate. This would give people an opportunity to come forward. It would give people an opportunity to come forward and say, yeah, you know what? I hadn't eaten anything for three days. And I said, hey, Job, could I have something to eat? And Job said, hey, don't worry. Food still tastes the same. If someone had been unkind, unjust, insensitive, this was the opportunity when people could come together and they could, they could say what was going on. Remember, Job is a man of great wealth and great influence. He's brought to the city gates where justice was carried out. And there was a time. When he was the judge, when he would hear the cases of the poor, the people who were impoverished, the people who experienced difficulty, Job refused to use his great influence to pervert justice. Here's what Job is saying. I never mistreated orphans. I never mistreated the helpless. I never mistreated the powerless. He affirms his innocence in what sense? That he did not neglect the needy or the helpless. Job helped the poor, verse 16. He helped the widow and orphan. And remember what we've already learned. These are two of the most helpless people in that segment of society in verses 17 and 18. Job fed and reared orphans, became a father to them, clothed them, provided shelter for them. And in appreciation, they blessed him and praised him. In verses 19 and 20, when he says, if I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, in other words, he covered them. Or any poor man without covering. If his heart has not blessed me. The implication being the poor, the needy, the helpless would come to Job and say, Thank you so much. Thanks for helping. Here's what he basically says in verse 22. Then let my arm fall from my shoulder. Let my arm be torn from the socket. Job is so confident that he's blameless and guiltless in his treatment of the poor and the needy. He is in effect saying, I'm willing to lose my arm. If I'm lying, if I'm exaggerating, if I'm falsifying my statements, here's what you do. Tie my arm to a horse or a donkey or a mule or an ox and have him rip it right out of my socket. You probably all heard the expression, I would give my left arm. 
In a way, that's exactly what Job is saying. If I'm lying, if I'm exaggerating, if I'm not telling you the truth, rip my arm from its socket. Amputate my arm if I'm lying. Think about what's happening. Job knows and fears God. Job understands that he's accountable to God. Job understands that there's a real God who is holy, who is majestic, who is just. Job knew what was required by God. Think, think, think. Years before it was ever issued in Chronicles, he says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. He knows all of those things. In Exodus, the Lord said in Exodus twenty two twenty two, You shall not afflict any widow. Or fatherless child. In Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 17 and 18. Moses said you shall not pervert the judgment of the stranger. Nor of the fatherless. Nor take a widow's raiment to pledge. In other words a person who doesn't have anything. But you shall remember that you were a bondman in Egypt. And the Lord your God has redeemed you from there. Therefore I commanded you to do this thing. In other words the Lord says don't you remember that that you were poor, you were isolated, you were neglected. Don't you remember that there was a society in which you lived in that you were the most at risk and you were the most vulnerable? Some of you grew up in those circumstances. Circumstances of abuse. Whether it was emotional abuse or alcoholic abuse or whatever kind of abuse, but you understood and you remembered what it was like to be alone or limited or a father who walked out where there is no buddy present to offer help and protection. And so he says in verse 23, For destruction from God is a terror to me. And because of his magnificence, I cannot endure. When he says, for destruction from God is a terror to me, he is in effect saying, I am deeply, profoundly, fundamentally motivated by the reality that I'm going to stand before God. And that his opinion is the only opinion that matters. Can you imagine having that profound sense of your life and the next life? And so he talks about innocence towards God. Look in verses 24 through 34. We'll we'll read it quickly. He says, if I have made gold my hope or said to find gold, you are my confidence. If I have rejoiced because my wealth was great and because my hand had gained much. If I have observed the sun when it shines or the moon moving in brightness. So that my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand. This, is, this also would be an iniquity deserving of judgment. For I would have denied God who is above. When he says for if I have made gold my hope. Remember he is a wealthy man. But he's basically saying, but even in that sense, even in my wealth, I never declared my independence from God. I understood and appreciated the fact that God had blessed me. But I understood that my blessing wasn't in my financial circumstances or in my wealth. When he says, for I have made gold my hope or said to find gold, you're my confidence. The the implication being wealth can't be my, my confidence. He anticipates What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And he loses his soul. Job never claimed to be self-sufficient or independent from God. Job denied having confidence and security in 
false gods. And so in verse 26, he says, if I have observed the sun when it shines or the moon moving in brightness, the implication being in that ancient world, it was a pagan world filled with idolatry where they worship the sun and they worship the moon and they worship the stars. And these people were disconnected from the true and the living and the self-existent God. And so they would look up in the sky and they would wonder if the sun was a God and moon was a God and the stars and the heaven, whether or not those were gods. And so when he says, so that my heart had been secretly enticed, the implication being, I understood that I lived in a world of idolatry filled with all kinds of weird and wicked beliefs, but I never once gave in to them. Look what it says, and my mouth has kissed my hand. It's an idiomatic expression, which means in the ancient world as, a, as an act of homage or adoration. In the ancient world, when you wanted to give deference to someone, you would blow them a kiss. You would kiss your hand. You, you, you see it in, in some cultures and societies even today. In Roman Catholicism, where I grew up in, a lot of people will go, they'll kiss their, they'll, they'll kiss. And the kissing is an act of expression, of adoration. And so Job is in effect saying, I never kissed my hand that is blue false gods a kiss. It reminds me of a story. There was a, a very famous atheist named Robert Ingersoll. And he and a friend were walking by a church. And as they were walking by the church, Robert Ingersoll tipped his hat to the church. And it astonished his friend. And he goes, you're an atheist. You don't believe in God and you don't believe in church. What are you doing tipping your hat? And he goes, God and I aren't on speaking terms, but we nod to each other once in a while. Atheist Ingersoll tips his hat. Job is in effect saying he never tipped his hat. He never acknowledged the false gods and goddesses. He says in verses in 28, this also would be an iniquity deserving of judgment for I would have denied God. He understood that it isn't good enough to just have a false a false loyalty. You see, the truth is, when you entertain the notion that there is something more powerful, more generous, more beautiful, more loving, more kind than the true God of the Bible, then, then you're inviting judgment. When you come to the conclusion that anything or anyone other than the Lord is the true, final source. So Job denies trusting money. He denies trusting false gods. In verse 29 it says, If I have rejoiced at the destruction of him who hated me, or lifted myself up when evil found him, indeed I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for a curse on his soul. This is Job's way of saying that he never rejoiced. He never rejoiced. He never ever rejoiced in the tragedy or the misfortune of others. Can you believe that? Even his enemies... Job never cursed or sought revenge against his enemies. Job sensed that mocking his enemies was wrong, that it was God's duty to punish or to avenge and not his. Job did not rejoice or curse when his, when his enemies suffered misfortune. And, and again, what an amazing thing. Remember, Jesus said, You've said, you know, love the people who love you and hate the people who hate you. And Job is saying, no, that can't be right. In 1 John 2, 9, it says, he who says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even until now. Job sensed that there was something fundamentally wrong. With taking advantage of people, the tragedies of other people, the misfortunes of other people. In verse 31, he says, If the men of my tent have not said, Who is there that has not been satisfied with his meat? This is hospitality. In the ancient world of the Mediterranean, it's a 
a long periods of time without food or water. In, in the Middle East, it's very, very important that you exercise hospitality. In that culture and society, it was practically the law that if someone came to your house and they needed a drink of water or they need food, that you were to help them. A lot of people got around this by giving the worst that was available. Imagine someone comes to your house and you go, you know, could I have something to eat? And you go, yeah, let's see what we have. And you go into the refrigerator and you make them a bologna and cheese sandwich. And you go, here. Well, you know, I've satisfied the need. You know, they've asked for something to eat and I've given them something to eat. Now imagine someone comes to your house and asks for something to eat and you go, I'm so I'm amazed that you're here and I'm so blessed that you've come. Hey, let's go to Outback Steakhouse and and let's order the most expensive thing on the menu. That's the idea. If the men of my tent have said, who is there that has not been satisfied with with, with his meat? The, the, The idea being when you went to Job and you needed help, you didn't get second or thirds. You got the best that was available. That's the idea. In Job's house, there was always plenty. And Job wasn't guilty of inhospitality. He opened his doors to strangers. He opened his doors to travelers. He fed them and he lodged them. And he said, if you can ask anyone whether or not it's true. Now remember, remember, remember. Even as he's making these declarations in this dump. Do people know the truth about him? They really do. They've watched him. They've interacted with him. You know, this is what the Bible seems to say. You can tell the truth about a person by how they treat other people. You can tell the truth about a person the way they treat other people. Do they treat them with love? Do they treat them with dignity? Do they treat them with respect? Do they treat them with honor? When he says, but no sojourner had to lodge in the street, the implication being that if a person was passing through and they happened to be in the land of us, there was always a place to stay at Job's house. He says, for I've opened my doors to the traveler. Verse 33, if I've covered my transgressions as Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom. This is interesting because Job makes a reference to Adam. Again, remember, this is before Genesis 1-1 has ever been written or Genesis chapter 2. There is this sense that there's an Adam. There's a, there's a primordial father, the original father. If I've covered my transgression as Adam, when did Adam cover his transgression? Remember, after the woman sinned and after Adam sinned and God came and he said, where are you? Adam was hiding. He was hiding from God. When he says, by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, hiding iniquity in your bosom is literally, in the original language, in the Hebrew, it says, in my hiding place. The verb form is found in Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 10. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 8, And 10, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid, same word, themselves in the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Verse 10, so he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was... Naked and I hid, same word, myself. The implication is, if I've done something really wrong, if I've offended God, I haven't found a secret place 
to stash it. This is Job's way of saying, I have no secret sin to hide. I hope you're beginning to understand something that what Job is claiming, have you been following along and saying, I wonder if I could claim that. I wonder if I have something that I've covered. I wonder if I have something to hide. Job's friends were convinced that he was hiding some secret sin. They were convinced that when no one was looking, when no one was paying attention, when no one was there, that he had something to hide. Paul speaks of healthy saints in Romans chapter 12, verse 13, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 9, use hospitality one to another without grudging. In verse 34, he says, because I feared the great multitude and dreaded the contempt of families so that I kept silence and I did not go out of the door. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. When he says, here is my mark, he's saying, in this oath or this covenant of my innocence, I'm ready to sign on the dotted line. That's his mark. Because I feared the great multitude and dreaded the contempt of families so that I kept silence and did not go out of the door. He was aware, Job was aware that some people sinned behind closed doors. They did things. They did shameful things. They did things that they didn't want their neighbors to know. People fear rejection by family and friends and neighbors. There's this profound shame and and discomfort that comes when you ask and answer the question, If you're doing something and the first thing that comes to your mind is, what if everybody finds out? If you're having that kind of private conversation with yourself, what if everyone finds out? What should be our conclusion? I probably shouldn't be doing this. And so, when he says... What he says in verse 34 and 35, it's Job's way of saying everything that I did in my public life and everything that I did in my private life reflected the truth about my heart before God. And then he says, oh, that I had one to hear me. He's in the dump, remember? Oh, that I had one to hear me. He's in the dump. You've already heard the stories of the, of the long accusations that have already been made. Have you ever been in a situation where you looked around and you wondered if anyone, if anyone, if anyone would believe you? He's surrounded by his friends. They're accus- accusers. He cries out, isn't there anyone who will hear my claim? Isn't there anyone who's interested in my innocence? He used to be a judge at the gate of the city. He's using legal language when he says, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. Here is my mark. In other words, I'm ready to sign on the dotted line. He's using legal language in the Hebrew, well, in this ancient culture to, to think about, I wish that there was some place where I could fill this out and I could sign an affidavit. That's the word I'm looking for. An affidavit of truth. So, and then I would sign it as a pledge of truth. It's Job's way of saying, I'm willing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. He says, oh, that the Almighty would answer me that my prosecutor had written a book. (gasps) But he did write a book, didn't he? It's funny that this is the first book, Job. Genesis is on the way. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are going to be coming up, Joshua and Judges. All you have to do is turn to the table of contents in your Bible and go down the list. 
There's the Pentateuch, there's the historical books, the poetical books, the prophetic books, the New Testament gospels, the epistles, the general epistles. God has written a book and given us an explanation. Job says, I'm willing to take a lie detector test. It's the ancient version of the lie detector test. In verse 36, he says, Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. In other words, if such a book existed, if such an affidavit existed, Job is willing to wear the charges against him on his shoulder and treasure it as a crown. Job is in effect saying that he's innocent of the charges. He's willing to take the stand. He's willing to prove his innocence. He's willing to face his accusers like a prince. He says, I would declare to him the number of my steps like a prince. I would approach him. It may be hard for us to understand, but Job's confidence is that God will find him innocent. And we know. We know. We know that we fall short. Think about the list. Sexual lust, Job says, not guilty. Dishonesty, deception, Job says, not guilty. Covetousness in verses 7 through 9. Let me give you the... Sexual lust, verses 1 through 4, I'm not guilty. Dishonesty, deception, verses 5 and 6, I'm not guilty. Covetousness, verses 7 through 9, I'm not guilty. Adultery, verses 9 through 12, I'm not guilty. Injustice, verses 13 through 15, I'm not guilty. Neglecting the poor and the needy, verses 16 through 23, I'm not guilty. Trusting money or phony gods, verses 24 through 28, I'm not guilty. Hating my enemies, verses 29 through 30, I'm not guilty. Refusing hospitality, verses 31 through 32, I'm not guilty. Hypocrisy, he says in verses 33 through 37, I'm not guilty. Greed, he says in verses 38 through 40, I'm not guilty. Can you imagine if those charges were brought against you? You're standing before God and you go, the Lord brings up sexual lust. Can we move on to the next one? Dishonesty. Can we move on to the next one? Wanting things that don't belong to you. Can we move on to to the next one? Adultery. Well, some of us might be able to say, well, literally, no. Matthew 5, have you ever looked at someone and wanted them? Okay, can we move on to the next one? Have we ever felt dealt poorly with someone unjustly? Have we ever neglected the poor or the needy? Have we ever trusted something other than God? Have we hated people who have hurt us? Have we refused to be kind to people who really needed our kindness? Have we in any way exercised hypocrisy? And now all of a sudden we begin to understand something. And some of us, even though Job has lost everything and lost his family and lost his health we resent him a little bit because he's so different than we are how can anyone be that good how can anyone be that good and suffer that much And then all of a sudden we we have a tiny, tiny glimpse into the person of Jesus, into the character of Jesus, into the righteousness of Jesus, into the purity and the holiness of Jesus. And we begin to understand something. We begin to understand something that we live in a broken world and it is broken in such a way That good and decent people can experience unbelievable difficulty. We're not even talking about the people who experience unbelievable difficulty, but they've failed in one or more of these areas. But remember what's happening in the text. It's asking us to ask new questions. Not just, 
why does suffering take place? Why do broken and hurting people experience such tragedy? But we begin to understand something. And that is that when a person is making appeal, and, they, and, and in this particular instance it's Job, he's signing an affidavit and he's saying, I just want someone to believe me. Job's confidence is that God is going to find him innocent. In verse, in verse 38, look what it says. If my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together, if I have eaten its fruit without money or caused its owners to lose their lives, then let thistles grow instead of wheat and wheat instead of weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. You may not understand what you've just read, but when he says, if my land cries out against me and my furrows weep together, Job is making an amazing claim yet. He's saying, I didn't misuse and I didn't abuse the land that God gave me. Job is in effect saying, if I've raped the land, plundered and spoiled the environment, if I am not eco-friendly, if I'm not the greenest guy in the Middle East, judge me. Think about what he's saying. He's willing to swear an oath that he's not guilty of greed. That he hasn't abused the land or the laborers. He's willing to suffer the loss of all of his crops and give up the use of his land. And we understand that God isn't disciplining him or correcting him because of lust. Because of greed. Because of some secret shameful thing. Because of some unconfessed sin. What are we to do with this? Where do we put this information? I was talking to a, a, a person on my radio program today. He's from Beirut, Lebanon. And he came to this country in the mid-70s. And Beirut was a war-torn country. And he had grown up in a Christian home but he deeply resented Palestinians and he deeply resented Jews. He deeply resented everyone. He certainly resented his own Christian upbringing and he had a crisis of faith because his best friend was killed by Hezbollah, which is a militant Muslim group, and he hated him. And then another friend was at the table, a friend was sitting at the table, and mother and father and brother and sister are at the table. He leaves the table. A bomb comes, blows up everybody at the table. He manages to survive because he's in the other room, this friend. He walks into the kitchen where his family used to be, and he finds plastic garbage bags and he begins to put what's left of his family into the bags so that he can bury them. Where do you put that? How do you recover from that? How do you manage to go forward with any sense of dignity or possibility of forgiveness. You see, there's a reason, there's a reason, there's a reason why we're studying this book. Because we need to have language that we can give to people that includes the reality that we're living in a broken world, but this broken world can be mended by Jesus. That there's life in Jesus and love in Jesus and forgiveness in Jesus. And guess what? When it says, the words of Job are ended, we're not going to hear from Job again. Not for many, many, many chapters. And when we do, something dramatic is going to take place.
Yes, I'm inviting you to read ahead. We're going to have communion now. All I ask is that you hold the elements until we all have an opportunity to partake together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we live in such a wicked world. It's such a broken world where people have hurt each other really badly. And Lord, we know that sometimes we've been the object of that hurt and sometimes we've been the subject of that hurt. And Lord, we thank you for grace and we thank you for mercy and we thank you for forgiveness. Lord, we understand that most of us can't, with Job, point to this laundry list of integrity and say, I never did that. That was never me. I never did that. Lord, we understand that without the love of Jesus and without the mercy of Jesus and without the grace of Jesus and without the forgiveness of Jesus that we wouldn't have any way to function in whatever meaningful way that you can function apart from God, apart from grace, apart from Christ. And again, Lord, we pray that we would allow this book to do what it intends to do, to expose our circumstances, to cause us to forever give up on self-righteousness, to cause us to expand sensitivity and compassion, to cause us to want so much, to care about people who are hurt. And so, Father, again, we pray that you would prepare our hearts. Lord, we pray that we would celebrate with joy once again the hope, the mercy, the grace, the forgiveness, the love that's found in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.